Blog Talk Radio. Tonight he will have very special guest author, script console, uh, script consultant, and screenwriting guru Richard Crevelin. So over the years, Richard has taught more than 20,000 screenwriters at his popular courses in LA and throughout the world. Listen, as he, uh, listen in as he unpacks the importance of WIFM story holes and what happens in all great stories, no matter who the audience is. We also want to let you know that all the shows here on Suspense Radio are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com. Also, intensity, skill, and tenacity, the female bodyguards of Elite Guardians Agency have it all. Bodyguard Kate Singleton stumbles upon her next assignment quite by accident when she finds out that local restaurant owner Daniel Matthews is in danger of being put permanently out of business. It will take the two of them to find out who's behind the intimidation and threats before a would-be killer strikes again. This is the book Without Warning by Lynette Eason. Please visit LynetteEason.com for more information. Also, when a deception specialist known as the Raven finds himself in a position to blackmail a prominent politician, he's only hoping for a few extra bucks. However, he quickly finds himself and over his head with the Ukrainian mafia, and deep in a life-threatening plot, codename Nevermore. Mike Napa's private investigators Trudy Coffey and Samuel Hill must scramble to sort out the clues to rescue the Raven from a wild card bent on revenge. This is The Raven by Mike Napa. Learn more by going to bakerpublishinggroup.com for more information on that. So now... We got all that out of the way. Let's turn it over to our host of the show, the Story Blender, Stephen James. So take it away, Stephen. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Uh, and so for today, I have a guest co-host who is a wonderful author. I met him a few years ago at a conference, and I've been privileged to watch his career really take off since then. Um, He's an author of great vision and heart whose many novels explore the realms of the spiritual and supernatural and Publishers Weekly gave his latest book, a Starred Review, and uh, his book, The Five Times I M- Met Myself, was a Christie Award uh, Book of the Year. So, James Rubart, thanks for joining me. Uh, Stephen, it's very fun to be here. Yeah, it's great. I love whenever I get out to the Northwest, we can we we sneak out and grab a um, breakfast together. Where was the one place that we went that one time? And it was like these ginormous like um, bagels or something. Yeah, know. the cinnamon rolls. It was the Malt Bee Cafe, uh, yeah. just outside of Seattle, and uh, that was a great breakfast. Yeah, I, yeah, I think they have cinnamon rolls about as big as the table, so that was pretty tasty. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, 
Indeed. Well, well, thanks for being here. And our guest today uh, shares our passion for telling stories of excellence. Um, Richard Crevelin is a screenwriting teacher, writer, producer, internationally known expert on the craft of story. And he's taught over 20,000 screenwriters at his courses in L.A. and his seminars around the world. And he's lauded by some of the top names in Hollywood for his teaching and his instruction. Under his guidance, his students have gone on to sell film scripts and TV shows to Universal, Fox, Paramount, DreamWorks, and others. And uh, He also consults with businesses, teaching corporate execs to apply the principles of great storytelling to leadership, to communication, and to charting the pathway to success. So, Richard, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you. I uh, wish I could have a big cinnamon roll right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, Richard, I don't even know if you know this, but a number of years ago, uh, I actually followed you on stage to teach at a conference out in L.A. And um, normally I like to follow a good teacher instead of a bad one. I just like uh, following up with the good energy, but I don't like them to be too good. So thanks a lot for putting me in that situation. Okay, which uh, that's uh, that's funny. Um, where do you remember the exact conference? Or uh, it was uh, let's see, it was a Writers Digest event, I believe, um, maybe in 2013 or so. And screen, I think it was combined with a screenwriting conference. Yeah, StoryCon, I think. That yeah, was. yeah, I think so. So oh, that's cool. So uh, yeah, so it's great, great to speak with you. Um, and uh, and and through your. Your courses, your books, I sense we have a kindred spirit, you know, really passionate about telling stories that raise the bar. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, have I read all the books on storytelling out there, and uh, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm fawning, but uh, yours is one of the best, and so, and I'm pretty harsh. A lot of the, you know, ones out there feel like regurgitated material, and uh, I just really loved yours, so uh, I don't. Say I appreciate that. that yeah. So that's yeah, cool. that's great. Yeah. I, I feel the same way that there's a lot of the same kind of uh, stuff out there. James, you know, your stories are really fresh, kind of unique and different. Have you found the same thing, um, you know, like it tends to be the same advice sort of regurgitated and just over and over again? Well, again and again and again, and people are trying to learn the craft of stories, so they follow these formulas, and editors and agents say, wow, not really fresh, not really exciting and new, and so I think people so easily get in a rut. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, can I I, jump in there? Yeah, jump in, yeah. um, You know, we mentioned the word formula, and uh, a lot of people, because I cross genres, I, you know, do screenwriting, but I also do a lot of work with novelists and, you know, have my own books I'm working on. Um, And you see a lot of people are drawn to screenwriting because it's really the world more so than any other writing world where people spend a lot of time studying structure and, and have, you know, this regimen 25% of the way in, you know, page 27, act one turning points and, a lot of people are drawn to that to that formula, which came out of people studying successful films. It's kind of a interesting phenomena. It, people studied successful films, saw patterns, recognized them, outlined those patterns, and then those patterns became more predominant because people said, "Oh, I." Uh, I have a meeting with a development person, and they they expect me to get my first act. So 
uh, at page 27, so I have to hit that page <laughs> number. And um, it's this kind of vicious cycle that's led to the fact that when I do seminars around the world, um, the, the single most asked question is why are so many Hollywood films so kind of formulaic now? Huh. Um, and, and I really believe that's the reason why and, and that this idea of formula trying to help us structure things has led to a um, kind of rise of boring, uh, predictable storytelling that we now have to understand the formula but go way beyond it. So you see a guy like Tarantino who understands the form and he keeps switching it and playing with it and going back in time and you know and so the people we're really interested in now are the people who are uh altering the form because it's gotten so stale yeah i i completely agree with you and and um you know i've been at some you know novel writing conferences and you know people come up to me and and say the same thing 25 percent or 27 percent of the way in i'm supposed to introduce subplot b and all this i'm like just set all that aside really the logic of this story is going to determine, you know, where and exactly when the inciting incident or whatever it is and where this turning point comes. And and instead of starting with that formula, like you said, it's okay to understand kind of where people are coming from. But, you know, start with that story and let that determine, you know, the shape of, of the story when you're done with it. Well, my favorite question is when they come up to me and say, I uh, what page should I reveal my bad guy? <laughs> it's page two seventy-two, of course. You know, um, so it, it's interesting when you get to the point. Um, well, you guys laughed. You should probably talk about why you guys laughed when I said that because it's it, for a, a, a first-time writer that seems like a legitimate question and it kind of makes sense. But then the more you think about it, the scarier it is. It's in that question. Do you find some of your students get uncomfortable with the idea of let the story flow? Let the Steve and I are both, uh, you know, we we when we discovered we both write the same way. It's like yes, you know, brother in arms, where we let the story develop itself. It's very organic. Do you find students will sometimes come up to you and be very uncomfortable with the idea of I can't follow a formula? Um. Yeah. It's well. It's a function of, I think, like the student's background, especially if the student comes from, like, law or medicine or engineering or something. Um, it's really just scary and feels wrong for them. There should be rules. There should, you know, and, and yeah. I think there's somebody, you know, they hear, and you hear about these legendary writers, so... Everyone knows Stephen King writes 5,000 words a day, and he has the entire story in his head. He doesn't outline this is what he does. Um, and um, and most people can't do that. So, right. you know, they they are they say, you know, and then you have the opposite person who is the, quote, creative genius person. I don't want to outline. I don't want any structures or formulas. I just want it to flow, and then they write hundreds and hundreds of pages that go nowhere. And have <laughs> right. And, and so it's finding that balance, and I think it does. You guys are the beneficiary of years and years and years of thinking about stories, so on a kind of an unconscious level, you are 
turning the story and twisting the story and moving the story and setting things up in the story constantly so you don't have to stick close to a structure because you, you can do it intuitively, but m- most people can't. So that's where the structure helps them. So it's a it's an interesting thing. You know, do you guys are you guys big outliners? Mm, no, I'm I'm not. I'm I'm quite organic, really. I mean, and this is I like what you just said too, and that is really studying story and understanding the movement of the story. Um, for for me, maybe maybe come intuitively, but I've been doing this for you know for decades. So, um, but on the other hand, also. The more I think people really understand the movement of a story through escalation toward twists and turns and revelations and transformations and so on, I think the less they do need to uh, outline because they'll naturally know, okay, at this point, uh, it's got to be believable. There's got to be an escalation of a chase scene from an earlier chase scene or whatever, and then they build the story that way. Um, now, that's kind of yeah, my, it's like it, or my approach. Yeah, it's like it, it, it's like that great jazz musician uh, who can go off in all these different directions and and almost organically play a, a great group that's played together for years, but they had to first learn the notes and learn the scales and learn all those kind of things to be able to do it. So, Richard, I think you bring up a really good point that that kind of organic writing really isn't in one sense isn't as organic as we think it is because in our minds, Steve and I are 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 doing that work almost on a subconscious level. But it's there because we've studied it and learned it. Well, yeah, things... so I think... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, go go ahead, Richard. No, I was just saying, so that's the the dance you're outlining, essentially, of um, doing the studying and getting the structure and understanding the formula um, and in, until it becomes... And I always reference you reference the world of music um the the reference i use a lot is everyone looks at uh you know uh, picasso and uh it's the two two eyes on the same side of someone's head and it's cubist and it's abstracted and um and he's but you look at picasso's early work and he had a complete understanding of perspective and light and shadow yeah. And it was only later in life where he said once he understood everything about classic academic, you know, drawing, and then and only then was he able to abstract, break the rules, and go beyond that to create something. Um, and so that's kind of the model of learn. And then he said he spent the rest of his life trying to, to paint like a child. So, hmm. and I, I, I interpreted that as, you know, and that's where you see the great, the the great storytellers kind of so doctrinated in structure that they can then have a freedom to go beyond it. But they always know how far to go and when to break the rules and when to come back. And the stakes are clear, and the characters are delineated, and the tension is constantly there, and the reveals are placed properly, and it's just that a marvel to watch someone who who can take those risks and still keep your attention. Yeah, let me back up for a second because I love uh, that you are a student of story. Um, and so when we talk about storytelling, when we talk about story, what, what would you say, Richard, lies at its core? I mean, what would you say 
at its essence, a story is, this thing that we are even discussing. Uh, I know that you work with the corporate world and also with branding, and like you've written you know, quite a variety of genres. Um, at the center of a story, what, what would you say we're looking at? Well, I have a golden rule that I, <laughs> I guess this is a little self-serving, but it's kind of in chapter one of all my books and all my work whether I'm sitting in a corporate headquarters or a Hollywood studio or a, a creative writing workshop, and that's just an engaging character must actively overcome tremendous obstacles to reach a desirable goal, and ideally that character changes for the better along the way. And um, that single sentence, I always say, is non-negotiable. You need to incorporate all aspects of that sentence. You can incorporate and I've done work with 30-second TV commercials and, you know, 500-page novels. So it's, it's, it's something that I think applies. And, and when you're reading a book or watching a movie or a TV series and it's working or not working, I think it is a function of, of that kind of core discipline. Is the main character engaging? Are they actively trying to pursue something that's desirable for both me as the audience and for them within the story. Are there tremendous tremendous obstacles placed in their way that are constantly being, you know, built up? And, um, and then in the end, is their goal desirable? And that means I want to keep turning the pages to find out if they can succeed. And then you have the character elements. Why are we moved? I'm always fascinated I don't know if you guys have spent a lot of time thinking about, um, like most guys I know don't cry in real life, but like when Rudy scores a touchdown, they <laughs> start crying like a little baby. You know, why are we moved by certain stories? Um, and, you know, and that I think is a function of character arc and change. And, you know, that that's really interesting uh, what we can do because we have the time and we're forced to write books about this stuff, is um, sit there and analyze why are these things good stories. Most people just get so caught up in a good story, and that's the goal of a good story, to whisk us away, that they're uh, you know suspending their disbelief and whisked into this world of aesthetic arrest, I call it. And you're just taken away into this. But I love this new term people are calling when they binge watch. They fall into a story hole. Have you? Oh, heard about nice. That? Huh, no, um, I like it. You know, so when you're binge watching a TV show and you're taken away, um, and there's a it's a there's a, a Twitter handle hash mark story hole. I've lost the entire <laughs> weekend because I watched, you know, um, Justified. I watched every episode, you know, for 24 hours straight, and I fell into a story hole. And then when you get out of that story hole, you kind of feel lost because you been immersed so deeply in this other world. Um, and, and so how did the, the storytellers succeed in, in pulling us into a, quote, story hole? You know, and I don't know what you guys think about that, but that's, that's the goal. Okay, I want to I, – I love that, Richard. I want to piggyback on that um, with – by uh, saying a quote that I know you like, and that is, the bait has to taste good to the fish – not the fisherman. And, and John Burroughs wrote, when you bait your hook with your heart, the fish are sure to bite. So I'd love you to talk about this idea for a little bit, uh, a bit because if somebody's been watching, if they go down the story hole, 
story hole, I think these things, those quotes are happening, aren't they? Yeah, so I, I begin all my lectures with that quote. I never heard, heard um, I might add Burroughs now to it because it's a perfect kind of secondary quote to add on to it. Um, they, uh, uh, that quote I, I first heard, I don't, I think it's an anonymous quote, but um, a friend of mine who's a political consultant used that quote uh, before he worked with any of his candidates. And I just loved it that we get so caught up in look at my story, fall in love with my characters. Uh, it's not a childlike attention to me, 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 me. Um, how clever and how wonderful my language is. Um, that we lose track of them. I mean, and you could sit there. The, the, the paradigm I always think about is um, when when James Joyce was sitting in his room and writing Finnegan's Wake for 10 years, he would be laughing hysterically to himself all night long. And his wife would just kind of look at him and shake her head because he was creating a new language. He was, you know, doing something that was incredibly pleasing to him. Um, but no one else in the world really can understand. It. <laughs> That's so true. You know, and, um, and we're talking about commercial literary fiction and, and Hollywood movies and things that you have to write. You can think it's the greatest thing in the world, but if, if it's not pleasing to others, if they don't feel compelled to jump into your story hole and stay there, then then you fail. So it's just about does the bait taste good for them, you know, in the end. And it's so hard to take off their literary author caps on their on, you know I'm a reader and I constantly ask my students to say to them so all right who's your reader and what are they need right now and are you giving it to them and are they clear about the stakes so I'm constantly inventing uh, inventing these audience surrogate characters you know so suddenly in the movie a young scientist pokes on and goes, but doctor, isn't this physically impossible? You know, and, and that's the audience saying, isn't this, you know, and doctor goes, but no, you don't understand. There's a, there's a quantum mechanics that allows this to happen. You know, so <laughs> you're, you're, you're constantly doing things within the context of the story to please the audience and keep them in a story hole, and they're constantly doing things that, must take them out, and you know if you're conscious of, did I lose? And I do a lot of work as a story consultant, um, and um, people. Uh, I don't know if you guys do some of that as well, but you know you're getting people like I, I'm not getting any agents to represent me. I'm not having any success as a writer, and um, so the the work I do is writing in the margins. You've lost me here. I love you know, and in it. Sometimes people need to hire someone because they don't know when their story is working and when they're losing their audience. And, and you can have the best first chapter. You know, every agent loves my first chapter, but then I get <laughs> my book and, and I lose them, you know, because to maintain a story for hundreds of pages is is close to impossible. I mean, you you know, the, the mastery of storytelling to, to keep my interest for hundreds of pages is, 
something that I, I'm in awe of for the great ones, you know, who are able to do that. Yeah, you know, when I was um, I was listening to your thoughts at um, just the whole idea that story is is kind of universal and um, and that it transcends kind of culture and also form even you know, whether it's a commercial or a novel or, or a movie and sustaining the interest and so on all the way through it. Um, it would remind me back when I was actually studying for my master's degree in storytelling. At the time, the leading AI researchers in the world were basically saying, if we want machines to think like people, we have to teach them to think in stories and not algorithms. And I just found that fascinating. And in your experience, Richard, um, have you sensed that we are wired for stories as well? Do you think that's like some sort of universal, or or where do you think that comes from? This idea of it lying so close to the heart of human nature. Yeah, well, I've been um, really lucky to be able to be at some like uh, I was at a neuro marketing conference, and they, you know, they have abilities now to hook up people's brains, and you can literally. And this will this will become a bigger thing, I think, in the future. Um, you know, a random house have a neuromarketing uh, section, and you know, people will read stories and they'll see when the brain is is function. You know, get glowing red. You know, okay, the story's working now. Um, and and when the you know, uh, so this whole idea of uh, us be literally hardwired for story, I think, is becoming more and more accepted. Um, the, the 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 metaphor that I use is the one that we see. Um, if you ask anyone, and I've gone around the world uh, and ask anyone, can you list the Ten Commandments in order? Um, it's very hard to do because the brain literally is not structured to remember lists. I mean, and it's very hard to list anything. Uh, but if I say, give me ten moments of the story of Moses, everyone can say, well, that's easy. He was, born, you know, a baby that was pulled out of the reeds and he was raised in the Pharaoh's court and then <clears throat> part of the Red Sea and led the people out. And they can give me this whole story that's always in the same exact order. And I say, well, why can you list 10 bits of information in a story that's fun to so easily and yet can't list the Ten Commandments in order and remember any of them? And the only answer that I've ever really been able to, to see is that it's just the people, you know, uh, we are genetically programmed to remember stories. Richard, it sounds like your mic might be fading off and on just a little bit. I don't know if you can check that or or um, or get closer. Or something. Now? <laughs> yeah, it is actually. That's better. Okay, I'll do yeah, that yeah. this way. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so um, one of the um, some things that you have sort of taken off uh, and started to consult with is this idea of branding. Um, and leading businesses in in something in need of a story or a narrative. And I know, Jim, you've done some of that same kind of work with marketing and branding. I'm wondering if maybe both of you guys can sort of 
tell me a little bit more about your take on that and how it relates to the way stories are being told today either through video or social marketing or, or social media. How, how, does, how does storytelling, uh, I guess, how is it vital to those aspects? Uh, well, Richard, do you want to jump in first or do you want me to have a go at it? So, go for it and I'll come in after. Okay. Well, Richard, it, it's it's kind of fun because I think you and I have a lot of uh, a lot in common. I I own a branding and marketing company, and I teach actually companies and individuals about how to brand and market themselves. And and I always go back to story, 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 because people buy with emotion and they back it up with logic. And facts and figures do not stir emotion. Story stirs emotion. And so when I teach people this and show them how it works, they, 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 you know, the light bulb goes off in their head or I'll show them an Apple commercial where this story creates this powerful emotion. And oh, by the way, uh, we have this product that can help you have the same kind of story. It goes back to that idea. If you really want people to go down your story hole and binge watch for 13 episodes, they have to find a character or characters where they go, oh my gosh, that's me. That could be me. And I'm sure you guys find this too, where, People will write and go, oh, my gosh, I could relate to that character. I was that character. I was in their shoes. And that's what really causes people to invest you know, everything, with everything inside them. And so I think we have to do that with our stories. We have to do that with our advertisements. And, and even to a greater degree, if I'm t- coaching an author on how to make an impact on an editor or an agent or readers, it always goes back to let's find that story that wins the heart. Yeah, that's um, exactly, well, yeah, obviously, (laughs) we feel exactly the same way. Um, All the studies on why people buy what they buy and why people care about, you know, why why does someone have an emotional response to a can of (laughs) Coca-Cola? When you think about it, it's kind of bizarre. Um, But, you know, when they were seven years old and they were sick and they had the worst stomach ache in the world, their mother said, you know, here, drink this Coke. It'll make your tummy feel better. And there's an uh, emotional story about being nurtured by their mother. Um, and, and so they have a emotional response. It's not rational. Um, when right. you walk down a supermarket aisle and you're drawn to one brand versus the other, that's not a usually a rational thing. Um, you... you had a good experience, you know, with this product. You drank this beer when you were a teenager and you had a good time and, you know, and you associate emotionally to that. And and then with the rise of every company now, every product um, having an online presence, we have more, uh, it's just fascinating, more opportunities for storytelling than ever before. And then you see these rise, the, the rise of these tribal communities of ambassadors and brand followers where people who love sriracha, you know, are going online and sharing stories with each other about their favorite hot sauce. Um, and, and it's kind of just an amazing moment in storytelling because people can, can form these online tribal communities that, you know, if you were a fan of Sriracha, where would you find other fans normally? I mean, you know, it, um, but now online you can do that. So it's it's an interesting moment for storytelling. 
Yeah, I like what both of you guys pointed out, and that's that emotional connection with you know, whatever product that, you know it might be that you're selling, and that um, I like what you said, Jim, too, about how logic tends to follow that afterwards. And um, when when I think about you know trying to tell stories, maybe a novel length story or something, how can I grab hold of that emotion early? Um, early on in my book so that I grab their attention and then I can appeal mortal logic and reason as the story progresses and they watch, you know, the events occur um, and the character take these actions to try and, and, and reach whatever goal it is he's trying to reach. But how do I saturate the beginning of my book with emotion in a way that will draw people in? I think you have to have a a moment with that character early on where, again, it's back to the idea of, oh, my gosh, I felt that, or I know somebody who felt that, or I can imagine myself feeling that. I can see myself in those shoes because um, – and this is Marketing 101 as well. It's, it is not about the company. It's about the customer, and so many companies promote themselves and talk about themselves and how great we are. They don't care. They only care what you can do for them and the emotion you can stir in them. Um, and so we have to have that character where you go, oh, boy, I get that. I can feel that. And then we care about everything else that happens with them. You know, Batman versus Superman or Point Break. I, I broke down and I watched the, this remake of Point Break because I loved the original. And it was just horrible because you just did not care really in any way, shape, or form about the characters. And so as much as I love action, as much as I love your book, Stephen, I want to care. I want to care first. I got to care first and early in the book. Yeah. Yeah, they have a great – in marketing, they have a great um, saying. I don't know uh, if you guys have ever heard it. They go, "What? Uh, everyone listens to the same radio station, W-I-I-F-M, <laughs> for what's in it for me. No, you know? no. And um, so this idea of how does it look to me, um, and that's obviously in terms of sales – um, how can this product help me with my life? Um, and then you connect that in terms of story. How does this relate to me? How uh, and why? And then just I think some people are are masters of storytelling. That they're telling a story about some character, but we're able the the relatability that it just connects to men and women of different ages and cultures. And if you can tell stories that transcend the individual and speaks to the collective, then you're doing something right. I'm sure you both would have handled this a lot better than I did, but a number of years ago, I was at a writer's conference, and a lady came up. She'd written a book about her 26-year-old daughter, I think, who had died of cancer or something. And basically, it was a memoir about how great her daughter was. And I said, I said, I said to this woman, I was like, nobody cares about your daughter. They care about themselves. And she just looked at me aghast, like, and I was like, oh, this probably didn't come out quite right. But I could have been a little more sensitive. But. I could have been a little more sensitive, but it's the same kind of idea what you guys are emphasizing. That is, you know, it's like when we read it, we don't know her daughter I mean, anything like that, but when we can connect, you know, on that emotional level, the deep, intimate human uh, level, then, and when we see what's in it for us and, how we can grow as a result of her story. I think then we're drawn to it. 
Hey, Richard, I'm going to totally go on a, in a different direction here, but I'm just curious. You work with all these aspiring screenwriters, and, and Stephen, I guess the question for you, too, because you work with uh, everyone from beginning uh, aspiring novelists to very uh, accomplished novelists. Do you think it's do you think it's inborn? In other words, Michael Jordan is just made to be the greatest basketball player ever. Is, is it inborn? In other words, are novelists made or are they born or is it a combo? Um, uh, it's interesting because you, you, well, you brought Jordan and then I always love my favorite Michael Jordan story is the fact that when he was uh, a sophomore in high school, he got cut from the basketball. Yeah, right, you know? right. So, even Michael Jordan, you know, I mean, by the time he was a senior, I think he was a, a, a college, you know, everybody in the nation knew about him as like the, one of the top prospects. But how does he, and and everyone else in his family was short, and, and how did he grow? You know, there's just all these, I mean, it's always fascinating. Um, uh, and I guess you're getting to the kind of the heart of nature versus nurture. But I, I, I do think... Um, it seems like there are just some people who naturally understand drama. In other words, when you, you, you have an action scene, why does one student have this person gives two punches, the other person gets knocked out, and they fall down, and the scene's over, and another student writes an action scene, and it's filled with ups and downs, and as soon as you get the scene's over, there's a surprise. And How did that person know to extend that in a dramatic way over several pages, um, and, and that—that's something that I think some people either they—they were born with it or just have watched so many movies and read so many books. Um, and and I think that's one of the big things you see today: people trying to do this, and they go, "Well, I don't really read." <laughs> so you're trying. You don't really read the genre. You don't read in general, or you don't. Um, I was doing a, a conference of uh, legal fiction, and all these people wanted were lawyers who wanted to quit being lawyers and be John Grisham. Um, <laughs> yeah. And most of the room had never read any legal fiction at all, but they knew they wanted to do it. And um, <laughs> you know that becomes problematic. And I think I always tell the story the. Uh, one of my favorite screenwriters is this guy Shane Black, who um, writes his his screenplays read like novels. They're just amazing. Um, and I was over his house, and he just had like every John D. McDonald mystery ever written. And I mean, he had just libraries and libraries of mysteries. And he, he said basically, since he was ten years old, he just has read every piece of pulp fiction he can find. And he writes well. Because the guy, you know, all he does is read what he's writing, hmm. you know, and he's and he's indoctrinated so deeply in it hmm. that he's he's developed unconsciously a deep sense of what the genre necessitates, and that's really interesting. Um, if you can, if you understand the nature of this genre, necessitates me doing certain things, and I, I know Stephen, you've. You know, you kind of hint at that in in your book, and you know what we need to do based upon the genre that we're working in. Yeah, you know, um, I think that that those are you know those are great points. And um, Jim, when you ask this idea about you know are, are people born with disability, and I kind of tend to see um, in the students that I teach, some are 
kind of naturally gifted storytellers. They just have a feel mm-hmm. for those beats, uh, Richard, that you were talking about. You know, the, why does this fight scene work so well? They just kind of have this natural feeling for the story. Uh, and other people are, tend to be more wordsmiths. Um, what they mm-hmm. write is elegant and interesting, but it doesn't go anywhere. <clears throat> Suddenly you're like, oh, there's no story. It's just like this interesting prose. And and so I, I kind of think that we tend to be one or the other, uh, sort of mm-hmm. like wordsmiths or kind of natural storytellers. And so I, I know personally for, from my um perspective, I think I'm a natural storyteller. I have to work and work and work to get the right words. Uh, other people that I know, the words come to them, but maybe the story isn't as strong. So I think identifying your strength, you know, which direction it is, and obviously, you know, working on your weakness, but play to your strength, you know. If you're a great storyteller, you know, maybe get some coaching on the wordsmithing or, you know, the other way around. Maybe an editor can help you, you know, if you have great you know, skill with the language, and maybe, maybe they can help you shape the story a little bit better. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. So, Richard, um, you've done a number of books um, that benefit a variety of different uh, people, whether general audiences, execs, screenwriters. Can you tell us a little bit about your books and kind of who they are targeted for? Because we want our listeners to go check out if they haven't read any of your material before. Um, to go sort of check it out, and, and um, what, what would you say would be the target audience for some of those products? Well, my newest one is the, called The Hook, um, and it's just really about um, engaging uh, people, and it's more consumers, really. It's really more of a marketing book. It's published by a business press. How do you engage uh, consumers through storytelling and kind of compelling people uh, who are in the business world to think about the story because they're naturally telling stories about the origin. And I outline the different types of stories being told. But, you know, you go to every website and you get a story about how the company was founded and why are some of those stories really compelling and make you want to buy something from that company and other stories you're reading like, okay, who cares? And 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 so I've been really lucky that uh, over the I, I started out uh, I moved to L.A. went to film school and I got a teaching job at USC Film School and um, was really just focused on screenwriting and teaching the art of screenwriting to people who wanted to write screenplays and then a the head the global head of hair care for Unilever Corporation invited me to uh, a free dinner <laughs> at, at uh, a fancy place in Hollywood. And he said, I want to take you out, and I want to see if you can help us tell better hair stories. And I go, what, what are you talking about? I'm a bald guy. <laughs> hair stories. Like, no, we, have, we want to tell 30-second hair dramas um, <sighs> in TV commercials, and we want a Hollywood storytelling expert to help us. Can we do it? Um, can I? Can I take you to uh, Wolfgang Pucks and 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 can you talk to me? And I was like, sure. And um, and it was great. It was one of the best jobs of my life. He flew me around the world to work with the advertising and and marketing people that were doing these hair product commercials. And we started thinking about how can you tell a story in thirty seconds, and is it possible, and is it necessary? And we 
um, we had great success and we, we made some great commercials. And so that was just this whole kind of unexpected. My first couple books, and the reason he found me um, was I wrote a book called Screenwriting from the Soul um, and then Screenwriting in the Land of Oz and How to Adapt Anything into screen into a Screenplay. And they're all kind of standard books. Some of them are used in film schools today. And uh, just kind of looking at storytelling, there's there's a million screenplay books now. Um, and Save the Cat has become a big deal. Um, but when I started, there was just really Sid Field's book and Michael Higgs and Chris Vogler's Writer's Journey. Um, and those were the big three. Um, and so there was a lot, I thought, that needed to be said about structure and screenwriting so i i wrote about it i don't feel like there's that much left to be said um uh, and, and so i started looking in other directions and that's why i wrote uh this book on storytelling in business which is becoming you know 10 years ago if you went into a business and used the word storytelling they'd kind of look at you funny um mm. and it's much more accepted now so i don't know um it's interesting if you because it sounds like uh, James is, is kind of doing the same thing. You know, obviously he has his story theories and coming at it from a little different angle, but in the end is just trying to reach people through stories in a similar way. Yeah, um, I wouldn't mind a gig where I get to fly around the world and write 37 commercials <laughs> and get free hair care too. What? <laughs> so... Um, well, before we close up, um, I, I love how, you, you know, you mentioned like screenwriting for the soul and, and a lot of the thought, it, it seems like, that you put into story is not just about telling a great story, but living a great story and elevating our lives regardless of our careers. How would you say the principles of great storytelling or understanding story can help us to do that, to actually rise above maybe the negatives that we've had and um, regardless of what we're doing in our lives, use storytelling to to find healing or growth or new directions. Well, I, I, I forgot about that book. I also wrote a book called Be the Hero of Your Story, and it was using all these. I started looking at all these storytelling fundamentals and these principles and realized that if you – for example, if you look at antagonists in your life and you see them as an obstacle to allow you to grow and learn and change, then when you face obstacles in your life, you can reframe them into a yeah. way where you, you know, and, and that revelation only happened because um, all my writers, I would say all my students and all my clients are too nice. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean too nice? I said, well, you're too nice. you you don't complicate the life of your characters way more. You know, you fall in love with your characters and they, they glide through the story way too easily. But you have to be mean as an author. <laughs> you constantly think of ways to mess up their life. You know, when you constantly ask yourself, what is the single worst thing that could happen to my character in this moment? And then you have to make it happen. Um, and so if you start thinking that way, then you also start thinking about, well, in my own life, as you know, a writer, if I'm facing a lot of rejection, how can I see that rejection? There's only two ways to interpret rejection. If your novels, you can you know kind of roll over and die, or say, okay, I 
I want to take up golf and give up writing, which is fine. <laughs> um, or you can say, well, this, these people are obstacles that have been put here to make me a better writer. And they're yeah. rejecting because it's not ready. And I ha- what's wrong with it? And I have to systematically kind of understand how can I make my writing better so that when I present my new novel to them two years from now, they go, oh, my God, there's this quantum leap in the quality of your writing. Um, and so all these negative things that are in the way are obstacles. And so you start thinking about your life. It's, and good therapy does this as well, you know, because a lot of therapy is narrative-based. Um, can you set, look at your life as a story? and yourself as the main character in that story and what what's happening and why. If you have that wherewithal, you can you can hopefully be a little happier at least in your life and succeed a little more. So it's, it's fascinating. I think it goes, and you think about all the great religions are based on story. I mean, if you're a story addict, you kind of wear story lenses and you see everything as, as narratives. I completely agree, and um, you know when you, when you said that too about um, about uh, about story. You know, it, this brings us back to one of the first things you said, Richard, uh, in our interview, and that was that it's about this character who takes action uh, in order to pursue this goal, whatever it is. And in our lives, you know, as we identify the setbacks, the struggles, the adversaries, or whatever it might be, we need to take action. I mean, there's a there's an image that I use when I teach sometimes, and that is um, I was uh, a wilderness instructor for a while, and, and we were out um, taking inner tubes down a river with some students. And all of a sudden, this kayaker came down the river and, like, paddled past us. And it just made me think that too many characters in books are on inner tubes. And they're just kind of mm. bouncing around, and in our lives too. I mean, just kind of bounce around. The current takes us here. The the rock throws us there. But the interesting characters are the kayakers, the action takers. And you know, in our lives, we have to face that. Well, am I going to paddle um, down the stream, or am I just going to let life bounce me around? So that's a good place for us to end, I think. Yeah, I love um, that. The yeah. great metaphor. Yeah. So, Richard, it's been great having you. I mean, the time for me has just completely flown by. Great insights, great takeaways. And, and of course, we want our listeners to check out your new book and also catch you at your seminars. Where can they find info online to uh, keep up with what you're up to? Um, well, I have uh, two websites. My business is, is called Power Story Consulting. So you can go to powerstoryconsulting.com. Um, anyone, um, there's nowhere we want to <laughs> My name, unlike Stephen James, there are probably more than one Stephen James in the world, um, but there's only one Richard Krevlin, so you can just uh, get in touch with me at rkrevlin at yahoo.com. Um, and then uh, I also have my site for all my writing. Uh, it's Prof K. My students call me Prof K, so it's just profk.com. Um, and so... Uh, I, I love working with people, so yeah, um, anyone who ever has a story question and wants to chat with me, it'd be great to uh, get an email. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and uh, so, info about my upcoming 
teaching and seminars will be at stephenjames.net and my new novel writing intensive uh, in Dallas in October and then Tennessee next spring is at novelwritingintensive.com, and we still have a few registrations left available. So, Jim, tell us about um, where we can connect with you online. Yeah, best place is James L. Rubart, R-U-B-A-R-T, jameslrubart.com. That's the place you can find out about books and sign up for my newsletter, and that's that's the best way to uh, stay in touch with me. All right, and for everybody else, um, for uh, more uh, guests and more interviews, more broadcasts, click to the storyblender.com, and always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time. Thank you.